Hey listeners, it's Mishi. Before we dive into today's episode, which is one we've been working on for a long time and I'm really excited about, I just wanted to remind you that we're organizing a really, really fun Israel story trip in November. We're going to be closing the registration pretty soon, so this is your chance to sign up. It's going to be a blast. We'll meet many of the folks you've heard on the show, we'll visit the scene of action of many of our stories, and you'll get to meet many of the producers and storytellers that work on Israel Story. I know I'm looking forward to it, everyone else on the team is, and if you are too, you can easily find out more details and sign up at israelstory-trip.com or just email us at trip at israelstory.org. Okay, let's go into today's episode. I never wrote any poem of mine on commission, on someone asking me to write. I always write because I, it comes from within and and I feel it in my veins and blood and, and, and I take it into words on my uh, notebook, okay? That's how I write. Meet Emmanuel. My name is Emmanuel Zabar and uh, the meaning of Zabar is Sabra. And Sabra means uh, someone who was born in Israel. Both of his parents had come from Yemen, but Emmanuel, the third of eight children, was already a Sabra. I was born in 1948 in the Hadassah Hospital on Mount Scopus during the war, the Independence War of Israel. Since then, Emmanuel has lived all over the world, in Jerusalem, in Bedzait, in Puerto Rico, England, Canada, South Africa, Today, his home is in Kfar Yona, a sleepy town in the Sharon, more or less midway between Netanya and Tulkarem, and that's where we visited him on a hot spring day a few months ago. Emmanuel met us outside, showed us his lush garden, offered us glasses of cold water in the living room, and then invited us to join him in his den, where he works. We all crammed in the tiny room, which, if I'm not mistaken, is a converted mamad, or bomb shelter. There was barely room to breathe, but we were all perfectly content. After all, we were there to discuss poetry. As a poet, I don't control the writing. The writing comes, flows, in the middle of the night, in the middle of driving, in the middle of, of, of doing something totally different, and suddenly I know that I have to take a pen and write something. And by the way, I belong to a generation that takes a pen. So I said we were there to discuss poetry. But the truth is, we were there to talk about one very specific poem. The poem that made Emmanuel famous. You know, I have thousands of poems that I wrote. But in this poem, I felt that I was touching. Like saying to, to whoever upstairs there, saying to him... These are the words I want to use. Allow me to use them. It's the only poem out of the thousands that I have that I feel sacred about it. It's also, coincidentally or not, the only one of Emmanuel's poems that was set to music. But always the purist, Emmanuel doesn't like referring to it as a song. I don't write songs, I write poems. 
So after that fairly dramatic build-up, I should probably tell you what this poem-slash-song is all about. And to do so, we need to go back in time exactly 35 years, to June 1982. Good evening. To the First Lebanon War. The stillness of the ceasefire in southern Lebanon was shattered today by the sound of guns, bombs, and planes. Now, this was a very different kind of war than the ones Israel had previously fought. It was a war we chose to initiate. Israeli tanks and troops, backed by air and sea bombardment, crossed into Lebanon before dawn. And it was, and still is, very far from being a matter of consensus in Israel. Eager to put an end to repeated terrorist attacks in the north of the country, and provoked by the assassination attempt on Shlomo Argov, Israel's ambassador in London, Prime Minister Menachem Begin and his Minister of Defense, Arik Sharon, activated a long-standing plan to invade Lebanon. The war, which cost hundreds of Israeli lives and thousands, some say tens of thousands, of Lebanese ones, officially ended three years later, in 1985. But in reality, it got Israel into the Boza Lebanoni, the continued presence of troops in the so-called security zone. It wasn't until the year 2000 that Ehud Barak, the former chief of staff turned upstart prime minister, withdrew Israeli forces back to the blue line. Anyway, in the 80s, Emmanuel was living in London, working as a representative for Keren Ayesod, the United Israel Appeal, which is the official fundraising organization for Israel abroad. One day, Yudha Avner, the new Israeli ambassador, told him he was organizing a memorial ceremony for fallen soldiers at the embassy. He said, Emmanuel, we know that you are a poet, and I want you to write something for Yom Zikaron. I said to him, okay, thank you. And I went home and I said, what can I write about? Emmanuel, as we heard at the top, was more of a muse poet than a pen for hire. And the whole task kind of stressed him out. It was 1984, two years after the start of the First Lebanon War, and Emmanuel felt he should probably write something about that. He just wasn't sure what. He mulled it over for days, consulted his wife, talked to friends. One of them was Dan's Mama, an Israeli journalist. And Dan's Mama said to me, Emmanuel, if you don't have an idea what to write about, why don't you write about the Yuval Harels? So I said to him, come on, come on, Yuval Harel, what's Yuval Harel? So he said to me, let me tell you the story. And he told me the story, and I was absolutely shocked. Oh, I'm getting goosebumps now. Emmanuel immediately went home and sat down to write. I didn't want to hear anything. I said to my wife, don't bother me. And I sat in my living room with the Bible, the prayer book, I had a feeling, a gut feeling, that the story is so sacred and is so moving and is so soul-searching that I cannot use any secular words in order to write it. And I was looking for holy words. And I delved into the books and into the, all my sources, and I wrote this poem. We asked Emmanuel to read it to us. He got up, opened his filing cabinet, and started searching for the original manuscript. I think it's here. Let's see. Here. 
This is it. 11th of February, 84. That's when I wrote it. Brit Damim. Oath of Blood. Al Daat HaMakom ve'al Daat HaKahal. By authority of the heavenly tribunal, we rode tanks called Tempest and Storm, secure in the command, lay not your hand upon the boy. Uvishiva shel ma'ala, uvishiva shel mata, od ze medaber veze ba. By the court on high, by the court below. Whilst this one was still speaking, another one came. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it, as for that night, it came. הלילה ההוא ייקחהו האופל, הלילה ההוא בא. על דעת המקום, על דעת הקהל, רכבנו סופה וגם שער. בוטחים, אל תשלח ידך. As you can probably hear, even from that little snippet, the poem is full of biblical and liturgical references to the binding of Isaac, to the friendship between David and Jonathan, to Job, to the opening of Kol Nidre and Yom Kippur. Now, a poem about an ongoing, controversial war, chock full of esoteric biblical allusions, doesn't necessarily spell out blockbuster. But it just so happened that Yair Rosenblum, one of Israel's most prolific song composers, loved the poem, and decided to set its words to music. That song, Brit Damim, ended up becoming an Israeli staple, one of the most iconic war songs we have. It has rich lyrics and a harrowing melody, but what makes it even more haunting is the story it describes. The story of Yuval Harel. And that's the story we're going to hear today. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. There are many, many versions of the Yuval Harel story out there. Some of them exaggerate the details. Others just get them wrong. Somehow there's this need that many people have to enhance it, as if the actual story isn't dramatic enough as is. Over the last few months, Samuel Thrope has been trying to understand what really happened there. To separate the mythologized public fiction from what were, more than anything, the most private, and intimate moments a family could imagine. And he brings us our story today, Oath of Blood. Here's Samuel. Could you introduce yourself? My name is uh, Yuval Arel. I'm 34 years old. And you're named after Yuval Harel? Yeah, after two of them, unfortunately. In Jewish tradition, at least among Ashkenazi Jews. It's customary to name a child after a relative who has passed away. But Yuval isn't named for a beloved grandparent or a favorite uncle. Instead, he's named after two young men whom neither he nor his parents ever met. Actually, the other two Yuval Harels never even knew each other either. And yet, the three men's lives have become intimately, 
and publicly intertwined. Yuval, who just introduced himself now, was born in 1982, in the Jerusalem neighborhood of Talpiot. Nowadays, it's just another part of the city's urban sprawl, with bumper-to-bumper rush-hour traffic, discount supermarkets, and new high-rises. But back then, Talpiot was a small place, kind of a village, really, on the edge of town. The shady, tree-lined streets ended in open fields where Palestinian shepherds grazed their sheep. It was a tight-knit community, where everyone knew their neighbors and all the kids went to their local elementary school, Zalman Aran. In the early 80s, just before Yuval was born, Talpiot was also home to another unrelated Harel family, who lived just a few streets away, Chaya and Yossi, and their two sons, 19-year-old Yuval and 14-year-old Amir. My name is uh, Amir Harel. I'm Yuval's brother, little brother. He was born in 62. Uh, I was born four and a half years later. Growing up, Amir idolized his big brother. He was very protective. He was the ultimate big brother that nobody messed with. Everybody knows him. In school, he's brilliant. He has all the achievement and uh, he volunteers and everybody knows. And he was very big physically, like 6'4", and full of, uh, you know, full of muscles. But he was very gentle. In high school, Amir's brother Yuval was a golden boy of sorts. Popular, a good student, and a talented artist who dreamed of becoming an architect. And, like most young people his age, Yuval was also preoccupied with his upcoming army service. He organized a garin, a group of friends who served together in the army. They spent a year volunteering on a kibbutz, Kibbutz Lochamei HaGetaot in the Western Galilee. Then in January 1981, they started their military service. But Yuval, he took a different path. After the year on the kibbutz, he was accepted into Kors Tais, the Air Force pilot's training program. Pilots are considered to be the best of the best, the most elite unit in the Israel Defense Forces. And getting into the flight program is fiercely competitive. Which is why it was so surprising when just a few months later, Yuval quit the course. He said, I'm not going to be a pilot. It didn't feel right to abandon his buddies from the Gar'in, who were all serving together in the infantry. I have to be with my friends. It was a fateful choice. On Sunday, June 6, 1982, Israeli forces invaded Lebanon, which had been locked in a bloody civil war for years. The conflict known today as the First Lebanon War had begun. The stated objective of the Israeli offensive was to strike at Palestinian militants operating in southern Lebanon and to push them back 25 miles from the Israeli-Lebanese border. In particular, the main target was Yasser Arafat's PLO, which had been launching raids and terrorist attacks into northern Israel. However, Israel's defense minister, Ariel Sharon, had a much more ambitious goal in mind. To crush the PLO, remove Syrian influence in Lebanon, and establish a Christian government there. 
he was sure that this new Christian-led Lebanon would then sign a peace agreement with Israel. Prime Minister Menachem Begin promised that the treaty would assure long-term stability. Perhaps there will be peace for 40 years, as it is written in the Bible. But that's not what happened. The war, which would continue until 1985, came at a heavy cost. According to official army statistics, 373 Israeli soldiers were killed. Many of them died in the first chaotic week. For decades, the Israeli army has followed a standard procedure when a soldier dies. First army representatives come to the family's home to inform the parents and siblings. And only then do they release the information to the media. And the soldier's name is announced on the radio. During the Lebanon war, these radio announcements were usually how relatives and friends would learn of a loved one's death. They'd just hear the news on the radio and get in their cars to attend the funeral. The names of the first soldiers who had fallen in Lebanon were announced on Thursday, June 10th. Chaya, Amir and Yuval's mother, anxiously listened to the broadcast. To her great relief, her husband Yossi, a reservist who had also been called up to war, and her son Yuval were not among those named. The next morning, on Friday, Chaya prepared a regular care package to send to Yuval. Having passed the night without a dreadful knock on her door from an army representative, she was confident her son was safe. I was sure he would receive my cake. She planned on sending the package to the front with a convoy later that day. But just when she arrived at her office, cakes in hand, the telephone at her desk rang. Her friend Yardena was on the line. What are you doing at work? She asked cautiously. She said, they just announced on the radio that Yuval Harel from Jerusalem will be laid to rest today. Chaya broke down. I yelled out, if a single fingernail has fallen from Yuval's body, I'm going to jump off the roof. I didn't want to live anymore. I didn't want to live a minute after Yuval. When Chaya talks about that morning now, she describes being in a terrible emotional limbo. In her gut, she was all but certain that Yuval was gone, that the army had forgotten to tell her, and were about to bury her son without his mother by his side. At the same time, Chaya also knew the army's procedure, and since no one had come to notify her, she couldn't be absolutely sure that the Yuval Harel they were talking about on the radio was her Yuval. Without receiving official word, going to the funeral seemed inconceivable. Not knowing what else to do, she made her way back home to Talpiot. Everyone, literally everyone in Jerusalem thought it was our son. When I got back to our neighborhood, to our street, Shalom Yehuda Street, there was total silence. You didn't even see a cat passing by. No one talked with anyone. Chaya's parents had taught her that no matter what, no matter what, you always have Shabbat dinner. So Chaya set about her usual errands. 
אני נכנסת למכולת לקנות חלל לשבת. אף אחד לא מדבר איתי. As if they wanted this ghost to leave the store. ככה כאילו מבקשים שהרוח הרפאים הזאת תצא מהחנות. Just like that. ממש ככה. Meanwhile, friends and family members from across the country had heard the same announcement on the radio, that Yuval Harel from Jerusalem had been killed. They were now traveling from as far away as Haifa to make it to the Mount Herzl military cemetery in time for the funeral. Representatives came from Yuval's youth movement, and from Kibbutz Lohameh HaGetaot, where his Gar'in had volunteered. Because so many soldiers had been killed in those early days of the war, there were rows upon rows of open graves, and bereaved families standing in the hot sun. But the many friends and family gathered at Yuval's gravesite were perplexed. You see, Yuval's parents, Chaya and Yossi, were nowhere to be seen. And in their place, another couple was reciting Kaddish. They'd gone to the funeral with big wreaths for our Yuval. Then all of a sudden they said, wait a minute, Chai is not a redhead and Yossi isn't so short. Yossi is a giant. No one could believe it. Confused, the would-be mourners made their way to Chai's apartment in Talpiot. At the same time, Amir, Yuval's 14-and-a-half-year-old little brother, came home from school. I remember coming home and then... One of the neighbors hugged me and said, you know, it's a sign of long life. I said, what is sign of long life? He said, oh, you didn't uh, hear. There was a rumor that your brother was injured or dead, but it's another Yuval Arel. It's not your brother. It's, it's a good sign. It's a sign of, of, uh, of long life for him. So that's when Amir's family first learned that there was another Yuval Harel. Eerily, this other Yuval was also a soldier, also 19, and also lived in Jerusalem. And strangest of all, his family lived nearby, in the same neighborhood, Talpiot. Put this way, lining up the basic facts of their lives side by side, the two young men almost sound like the same person. But the truth is that they were very different. It's very individual, very unique. It doesn't do what like, everybody does. He did not go by the, by the stream of everyone. Yuval, my brother, was, you know, the, the guy of many doubts. Ayelet is the sister of the other Yuval Harel. My name is Ayelet Harel. I'm almost 51, 50, I should say. Now it's easy to get the two young men confused. So to keep them straight, I'll just call them Amir's Yuval and Ayelet's Yuval. Anyway... Ayelet, Yuval, and their younger sister Edith spent most of their childhood in Cholon, a city just to the south of Tel Aviv. Ayelet says that Yuval was a dutiful child, but as a teenager he got more rebellious. He dropped out of high school and just wanted to listen to records all day. That may not sound like much of a rebellion, but this was no small matter in the straight-laced Israel of the time. He had very long hair, really long. I mean, like, girl-style long. I mean, people thought he was a girl, and then they would go around saying, you know, what is this, a hippie? We had a lot of conflicts as, as two teenagers. I mean, I was the annoying sister. I was much more Israeli-like, uh, much more boring than him. I think I looked very much up to him because he was maybe many things that I wanted to be, but I was not, you know, I was... reading Nomi Shemer, and, uh, which is an Israeli poet, and he was, like, listening to Led Zeppelin. 
Yuval spent an extra year finishing high school in Cholon. Then in August 1981, at the age of 19, he was called up for his military service. The day he went into the army, typically a celebratory day for Israeli families, Yuval insisted that he didn't want people making a fuss. No gathering of family, he asked. No excessive displays of emotion. When they dropped him off at the base, Ayelet recalls, My brother didn't want us to get out of the car, so he just went out of the car, said bye-bye, I mean, agreed to give us some hug. Soon after, Ayelet's family moved to Jerusalem. In fact, they moved into an apartment just a few streets away from where Chaya, Yossi, Amir, and Yuval had been living for years. Ayelet's mother, Miriam, even found a job teaching at the neighborhood Zalman Aran school, where Amir and Yuval went as kids. But the two Yuvals never met. Ayelet's Yuval preferred to spend his weekends off from the army with his friends back in Cholon. And by the time the war broke out, in June of 1982, he had only been to Jerusalem a handful of times. Ayelet's Yuval served in the Armored Corps. On the first day of the war, a Sunday, his tank brigade entered Lebanon and began advancing north along the coast. By Monday evening, June 7th, they had reached the city of Sidon, some 35 miles from the Israeli border. Their objective was to capture the nearby Ein Hilwe refugee camp. The camp was originally built to accommodate Palestinian refugees from the Galilee who fled to Lebanon in 1948. But, in the intervening years, it had become a PLO stronghold. The next morning, Israeli forces stormed Ein Hilwe. Missiles and rocket-propelled grenades were fired at them from all sides. The tank brigade was trapped in the narrow lanes of the refugee camp, unable to turn around or maneuver in any direction. Yuval's tank was hit by a missile. He was killed instantly. Following protocol, an army car pulled up outside of Ayelet's house at 6.15 on Friday morning. Ayelet remembers that she was up early that morning, studying for a math test. Suddenly, she heard screaming and ran downstairs. Her father and mother were standing, frozen, next to two strangers in military uniforms. My parents could not do anything. They were in shock, screaming, saying stuff. The only thing my mother could say to me, because I was in my pajamas, go get dressed so we don't be embarrassed after people come here, you know, so she got that focused on me. After getting dressed, Ayelet stepped out into the street. You know Jerusalem in, in a Friday morning, very, very quiet, very beautiful. It's June, a very, very clear day. So I remember the difference between life going on outside and my home. Sort of like, I remember this thinking about it. Wow, Kilo. Like here, nothing happened. For a second, you can still live. The funeral took place later that day at Har Herzl, Jerusalem's military cemetery. This was the same funeral that Yuval's friends and relatives, that is, Amir's Yuval, accidentally attended. It was a very, very hot day, you know, June. And my brother Graves is up the hill of uh, Har Herzl, the big, big hill. So uh, you had to walk all the way up. First goes the command car with the coffin, because soldiers are buried in coffins. And after the command car went, my grandmother, and I remember her, you know, she was crying and going. She was a small woman, my grandmother. I don't know how old she was, I guess, close to 70, I think. 
So, you know, I remember, like, seeing the whole thing, people digging. That day, Ayala recalls, the cemetery was in turmoil. So many soldiers had been killed that funerals were taking place one after the other. As one bereaved family walked down the steep hill after burying their loved one, the next funeral party was walking up to do the very same thing. Islet remembers that there were unfamiliar faces at her brother's funeral. We noticed that there are people that don't belong to us, but we were not thinking of this. We were not really busy with the, with the people. The strangers at the funeral, of course, were Haya and Amir's relatives. As soon as they realized their mistake, they made their way to Talpiot, bearing good news. Their Yuval must still be alive. Now you'd think Chaya and her family would be happy and relieved, but that's not what Amir remembers. Actually, it, wa- it wasn't joyous. It wasn't a joy that, oh, we learned that he's okay. No. Actually, people were crying. I remember that, because somebody was dead. It's not, it's not my brother, but... It's somebody's brother, it's somebody's boy. Chaya couldn't relax. After all, her son and husband were both still soldiers, both still fighting in Lebanon, and both, in every way that mattered, still very far from being safe. A few hours later, with friends and relatives still gathered, Amir was the first to notice a car pulling up on the street outside. I looked out of the window, I don't know why, and I saw the military car coming and the parking opposite the house. Three people they came out of the car and I understand immediately. Also my brother was killed. It may be sound cold, but uh, I understand in a second that my life, my family, everything is changed from now. I went to my uncle and said to him, be next to my mother. Something's going to happen. Half a minute, a minute later, they knock on the door. I went in and people were starting telling them, listen, you have a mistake. Check again. He's not dead. We've been to the funeral. We've been to the funeral and we understand that it's another Yuval Arel. But the soldiers were adamant. They repeated again and again that yes, both Yuval Harels had been killed. It seemed impossible. The two soldiers with the exact same name, from the exact same neighborhood, had been killed, especially since none of Chaya's friends and neighbors, all longtime residents of the neighborhood, knew of Ayelet's newly arrived family. Talpiot, you'll recall, was a small, closely knit place. How could there be another family of Harels with their own 19-year-old Yuval? It was much more likely, they all thought, that in the chaos of the first week of the war, the army had simply made an innocent, if heartbreaking, error, confusing the still-living Yuval, Amir's brother, with Yuval, Ayelet's brother. But the officers assured them there was no mistake. Amir's brother's unit had also entered Lebanon on the first day of the war, and slowly made its way up the country's eastern front. By the fifth day, Thursday, so two days after Ayelet's Yuval had been killed in the Ein Hewe refugee camp, the soldiers had reached the village of Rafid, about 25 miles from the Israeli border. That morning, four Israeli fighter jets were sent on a mission to bomb enemy forces further to the east. But the pilots mistook their target and dropped their bombs on the Israeli troops instead, 
24 soldiers, including Amir's brother, were killed, and over 100 were injured. A day later, Yossi, Yuval's father who had also been called up for war, heard about the tragedy and rushed home to Jerusalem. My father came from the front. I met him at the stairs and told him, it's okay, you're going to have a lot of uh, grandchildren for me. So Don't be upset, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. The two Harel families passed that Shabbat in mourning. But now, after hearing about the mix-up, Ayelet's family began to wonder. Sunday morning, uh, my grandmother opens the newspaper and then she sees there a morning notice to Yuval Arel from Garin Lochmitan, Kibbutz Lochamea Gitaot. She said to my mother, who do we have in Lochamea Gitaot? We don't know anything. So they called Tzinaer. They have the data of all the people that are being killed. So they said to us, there is another Yuval Arel. And then they even said the facts, you know, that both of them were 19 and they live also in Jerusalem. So then, you know, my mother tells my father, it's a mistake. Maybe it was wrong. It seems so many details that are the same. So she tells him, Yuval might come back. Do you think your mother actually thought that? You know, today, I mean, this information would come in a second. But in that time, of course, I, I, I can imagine that every mother was saying to herself, you know, I wish it didn't happen, yes? There was an atmosphere of everything here is a mess. Chaos, the war itself, and it's, it's a mess. Ayelet's parents sat with the guests who came to console them at the shiva. But all the while, they hoped, and for a few days even believed, that the army had got it all wrong. Finally, on Tuesday evening, June 15th, Yuval's tank commander arrived at Ayelet's family's home in Jerusalem and gave the account of Yuval's death in Einol Chilwe. For Ayelet's parents, that marked the end of hope. In the end, the two Harel families both followed the same torturous path. The shock of learning of their son's death, the glimmer of hope that perhaps he was still alive, that it had all been a terrible mistake, and finally the sobering realization that their Yuval was truly gone. It's just that each family's passage through these stations depended on the other, like a bullet ricocheting again and again off the walls of a closed room. The two Yuvals are buried next to each other in the Mount Herzl Military Cemetery in Jerusalem, just a few plots apart, in the same row, in the same small section overlooking the same forest of evergreen pine trees. The graves are planted with rosemary bushes. Some are topped with pots of colorful flowers. The names of the soldiers are carved into identical headstones, all painted with the same gold paint. 34-year-old Yuval Harel, who we heard at the start of our story, comes to Mount Herzl every Memorial Day. He stands with Amir and Ayelet and their respective families at the official ceremony honoring the country's fallen soldiers. But he's not just an extra at this intimate gathering. They know him well, give him big hugs, and invite him back home afterward. Yuval is basically just one of the family. Chaya was at my wedding uh, under my chuppah. 
like uh, with my mother, my father, and Chaya. When I talk to uh, Amir, he's like an older brother, and Chaya is like a mother or grandmother to my kids. So how did he get his weighty name? Back in June of 1982, this Yuval's family also lived, believe it or not, in Talpiot. His mother was seven months pregnant with him, and his older brothers were in elementary school at Salman Aran. And when, uh, when it happened, uh, of course, the whole school was, uh, was shocked, and it was a big story in, in school, and my two brothers were, you know, they took it really hard, and they came to my mother and said, listen, mom, if it's a boy, let's call him Yuval. They said yes, without thinking about the consequences. Sometimes when people ask me, what is your name? And I say, Yuval, Yuval what? Yuval Arel? Wait, Yuval Arel. Do you know the story? Do you have any connection to the story and everything? You see, everybody knows the story of the Yuval Harels. There's a famous song about them called Brit Damim, or Oath of Blood. It's played on the radio every Memorial Day and performed at community centers and schools across the country. Kids learn about the story. Army welfare officers study the case in their training courses. And tourists from Israel and all over the world, including many birthright groups, are taken to see the two adjacent graves on Mount Herzl. So I went there uh, one day with my wife to do graves to Mount Herzl. And then there was a group of students with their guide telling them the story about the two Yuval, Yuval Arel. And I'm, uh, you know, standing aside listening to, to what she has to say. And then she's... She's telling this my story. You know, there was another Yuval Arel who was born, and then in the song and and everything. I'm of course. I don't know what to say. When the guide finished, Yuval took her aside and told her that he was the third Yuval she had just been talking about. She refused to believe it, so I had to take my idea out. I was shocked. She was shocked. She didn't know what to do with herself. She started crying because um, because it was also it's it's. The story is touching, you know, as itself, and then, you know, to see the person that he was just uh, talked about. Imagine being born into a story of grief that everyone knows before you've even taken your first breath. Hearing your song on the radio every Memorial Day. Chaya making her dead son's favorite date cookies, just for you. Your family breathing a sigh of relief when you don't die, like your two namesakes at 19. Sometimes Yuval's name makes him uneasy. But mostly he's proud to be a part of the story. It's an all-Israeli story, I think. I mean, if this story would take place in any other country, I don't think it could be a bigger deal like in Israel. But Israel is so small. When Yuval says Israel is small, I don't think he's talking about geography. I think what he means is that the entire country is, or imagines itself to be, just a slightly larger version of that intimate Talpiot neighborhood of the early 1980s. A place where everyone knows everyone, and all their business. Where neighbors and even strangers can be as close as family. Where two families' private grief can so easily become muddled with everyone's grief, the collective grief. A place where, when they put on their uniforms, two very different boys could seem almost interchangeable. He died through a public national war, yes? paying the price of the public, so the public is involved in his death. I understand that, of course. In the end, though, the two Yuvals are not all of Israel. They were particular men, particular sons and brothers, each mourned as a particular loss by his own particular family. And maybe 
that's a good place to end this whole confusing saga, with the memories of the people who loved them. He was a kid, but he was, he, he was uh, with an old soul, really. <laughs> he was not the hero guy. He was not like the Israeli military story about fantasizing to be a combat and a hero. I remember when, when he died, I, you know, I was saying this was not belonging to his biography. Samuel Throp. Samuel is a freelance writer living in Jerusalem. His latest book, The Israeli Republic, is available on Amazon. The original music in today's episode was composed and performed by the supremely talented Ruth Danon and featured Sher Niv on the guitar. This episode was edited by Julie Subrin and mixed by Sela Weisblum. Thanks to our dubber, Debbie Sinclair, to Dima Perevoshikov, Etia Neta, and Gal Hermoni. As always, you can hear all our previous episodes on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story on iTunes and any of the other main podcast platforms. And if you get a chance, rate us on iTunes. Apparently that helps get the show to new listeners. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you'd like to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, which you really should, it's easy. Just email us at sponsor at prx.org. I'm reminding you one more time about the Israel Story trip in November. For more details, email us at trip at israelstory.org. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Roy Gilron, Maya Kosover, Zev Levi, Aviva de Kornfeld, and Eve Snyder. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with a brand new Israel Story episode. So till then, yalla bye. <laughs> Oh, <laughs>
Thank you. 